Alrighty, full disclosure, guys, I talk a lot in this podcast about Bitcoin and uh, potentially purchasing an asset. I am not an investment advisor. I have done none of the requisite training for that. So please understand these are personal opinions and you should always consult a financial advisor before doing anything regarding your own personal finances. Thanks. And I hope you enjoy what is a very long, but hopefully you find it informative lesson. Hello and welcome to Worst Pod. Um, it has been a while. I know I say that <laughs> like every episode now, but um, I uh, really want to come back because I've been doing a lot of like thinking and researching on my own and uh, I've come to some realizations and I just want to share them. Um, this, I mean, this podcast, first of all, may sound different because I've had to redo all the leveling and everything because I, like an idiot, deleted everything that I had. So um, if I sound completely different and the song, the intro track sounds different, uh, I apologize. I should have kept everything and I just, like a dummy, didn't. Um, so this podcast is intended to, like I said, take you down a journey. Um, it is somewhat narrative in how it is uh, laid out, but to be honest, it's mostly just like random points. <laughs> so it's my job to try to make it all string together and not bore you to death. Um, but it is very information dense and very data dense. So I'm going to do my best to take little pauses, explain everything in normal people terms um, as I go through it, just so you understand uh, the hard points that I'm trying to get across. And uh, I know it sounds crazy, but uh, <laughs> the, the topic of this podcast is going to be Bitcoin. And it's going to be approached from a monetary standpoint, uh, which it means what is money? Uh, what is monetary policy? What is the Fed? We're going to talk about inflation, which is all the rage right now because the latest um, CPI data just came out. Um, CPI stands for Consumer Price Index, which is essentially just one measure of inflation. There are multiple. There's a whole bunch of variations on, on each of those um, measurements as well. So it's not exactly a full picture, but um, it does it is a commonly cited statistic with regard to inflation. So we'll talk a little bit about that, what the numbers show. Uh, we'll talk about, you know, what has, uh, what are the causes of that uh, and, and whether or not we can, you know, pin down anything specifically that's been driving inflation. Um, and then we'll talk about what hard money is. And, you know, throughout the entire thing, essentially, I'm going to be citing back, uh, essentially going back to Bitcoin and talking about Bitcoin. Because uh, like I've said, I think Bitcoin is uh, really important. And if you listen to the last investment podcast I did, I think I mentioned that you should own Bitcoin. It should be part of your portfolio. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, essentially, this is just the, <laughs> the condensed uh, version of, I don't know if it's that condensed, actually. It's just a version of why you should own Bitcoin um, without getting into any of the specific mechanisms behind Bitcoin. Uh, because I feel like if I did that, if I started talking about blockchain and decentralization and uh, distributed ledgers and uh, proof of work and <laughs> all of these buzzwords that you may have heard, but you have no idea what they mean, I'm going to bore you to death. You're not going to care. 
you're not really going to understand how that works or why it's better than anything else unless I go deep dive into every single concept. And we're just not going to do that. There's no reason to. Um, I'm going to go with, you know, the highlights as I go through this discussion. And, um, you know, if you have any further questions, you can always do research on your own. And I highly suggest you do. Okay, first of all, let's just start with a primer on Bitcoin because I have as the first thing on my list to go through what is money. But if you don't understand what Bitcoin is, you're not going to understand why um, it can potentially be money as well. So, so Bitcoin is essentially a, well, to be clear, Bitcoin is nothing. Um, <laughs> Bitcoin is nothing. And at the same time, uh, it has a lot of value. And how can that be? Bitcoin is essentially a series of numbers and letters that uh, form a network in which uh, value can be exchanged. That sounds crazy. It sounds like someone just made up some voodoo language and uh, everyone's just following it, which is kind of what it is. The reason Bitcoin has value is because it is extremely unique. Um, it is insanely creative and innovative, and it actually has real use in the world. When we talk about the value of Bitcoin, we're really talking about three things that it does really, really, really well. Um, number one is it's borderless, meaning because Bitcoin is kind of everywhere, first of all, it doesn't exist, but because the network is accessible anywhere, you can technically have access to your quote unquote coins, which don't really exist. Again, they are just um, essentially data that's tied to a quote unquote wallet. It's just strings of data tied together, just like anything that you're doing right now on the internet. Um, it's permissionless, meaning nothing is controlling it. There is no central agency. What controls Bitcoin is just the uh, the Bitcoin uh, protocol. So the only things um, the only thing that is controlling Bitcoin is a Bitcoin protocol. The protocol can be changed, but it's really hard to change. So we, it's not really a serious threat that we have to consider. And then the the last thing is digital scarcity. So there's only ever going to be 21 million. I mentioned this briefly in the uh, investment podcast that I did. Nothing really is as scarce as Bitcoin, I mean, you can argue it's not super scarce because each Bitcoin can be divided up into 100 million parts. So you're talking about 21 million times 100 million, which is what? Something quadrillion. But the fact that, you know, less than 1 million um, accounts in the world, wallets that is, hold at least one Bitcoin means it's super scarce to own a full Bitcoin. If you are one of the few in the world to own a full Bitcoin, and Bitcoin appreciates in price, you will certainly be uh, at the top of the food chain uh, in the world economy in the future. So we'll talk through why I think that's important and why I think you should be one of those people in the 1 million. Um, think about how many people on, on the planet, first of all, what are, where are we at now? I know we're over like seven and a half billion, so somewhere around there. Um, if you wanna be one of those 1 million out of the billion, uh, which I think you should be, Keep listening. Um, there are those who argue that Bitcoin is essentially going to take control of all value in the world uh, because of its superior qualities. I'm not necessarily in that camp. I think Bitcoin is going to replace gold. I think that's the easiest thing to predict right now because it's a better version of gold. I think that Bitcoin will take a lot of value from the stock market, from uh, existing currencies, from uh, debt from uh, real estate, from derivatives. It's going to take pieces of the pie from all of these different sectors um, where value is usually stored. Does that mean it's the end all be all? And, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not really a Bitcoin maximalist. <laughs> I consider myself to be uh, very, very pro Bitcoin. That said, maximalists 
usually say, you know, it's going to take over everything. That's just not reasonable. It's not feasible. There has to be other stores of value. There has to be other mediums of exchange. That's crazy talk, right? Usually what I found in my life is that there's people on the low end of everything and there's people on the high end of everything and the truth is always in the middle. So if we if we can, you know, understand that concept and just say the truth is somewhere in the middle, you can still have a very bullish outlook, bullish meaning you think it's going to go up on Bitcoin in the long run. Um, and, and it's a reasonable stance. It's not crazy. Don't think that all Bitcoin people are crazy. And I'm about to lay out for you in, in real terms why it makes sense that Bitcoin can replace dollars. It can certainly replace gold. Um, and we'll go through it together. Okay. Using academic definitions, we're going to use like normal nomenclature that's typically used in academic settings. A lot of this is straight from the Fed's websites, straight from the federal banks. So I'm not giving you any fringe data here. All right, you ready? Here we go. So what is money? Let's talk about what money is. According to academic studies, and well, I guess it's not really studies, it's just kind of like the field of academia. What is money? This is what academics have decided are the characteristics of money that make it useful. Um, number one, durability. Number two, portability. Number three, divisibility. Number four, uniformity. Number five, limited supply. And number six, acceptability. We're going to go piece by piece through each one of these. So first, durability. Let's take what people used to use as money, right? Wheat, chickens, you know, name your crop, name your, name your animal. Um, they're not very durable, right? The number of times those things change hands, they, they deteriorate over time. Um, some of them just have age, right? They have a shelf life. Not very durable. Whereas what we use today, more durable, right? Even though it's paper, it's actually cotton. And coins are pretty durable. Um, and then, you know, if you're using digital currency, you can't really, you know, there's no way for it to degrade really, uh, unless the network it's on degrades in some way. So very durable. Portable is number two. So it's easier certainly to take bills and coins around with you than it is to bring a chicken wherever you're going, right? <laughs> That's pretty simple. Uh, divisibility. Uh, hard to divide up a chicken or a cow or a goat or whatever you have, right? You're going to butcher that thing and sell off pieces of it. Plus, everyone is different. Um, we'll talk about that in uniformity as well. But um, it's just really hard to do that, right? Whereas if you have a coin, usually they're in different denominations, so they're kind of self-divisible. But even if you needed to break a denomination off, this is a well-known tactic people used to do back in the uh, olden times, like in the Roman Empire, for example, they used to cut pieces off of coins to assess taxes. And, uh, you know, in early America, I think, they used to, you know cut pieces off of coins and then try to hammer them to make them look like they, they haven't been altered in any way. They used to punch holes out of the center of a coin and hammer it flat so you couldn't tell that there was a hole in the middle. And most of that was solved over time by the invention of like the ridges on the edges of coins and things of that nature. So anyway, uh, they were, coins are still divisible, but money in any denomination is usually divisible by lower denominations. Uniformity. So, you know, a dollar is a dollar anywhere you go. Serial number might be different but dollar's a dollar. Still worth a dollar. Limited supply, though there is a very large supply of dollars and uh, fake dollars and digital currency that's out there in, in the economy, that's um, still a limited supply governed by legislation or Fed policy. Actually, kind of both. Um, so, And you have that with gold as well, silver as well. Acceptability. Are people going to be more likely to accept a chicken or paper money that the government says is, is valid money or gold coins, for example, you know, all of these things are 
uh, varying degrees of acceptability, but they can all be used as money. So now that you understand the characteristics of money, we're going to talk a little bit about what has this looked like over time. We started with the trade and barter system. Of course, why I've been using the example of the chickens and the goats and the cows, the wheat and the, I don't know, rice, name your whatever. Um, that's how we started. We just traded things. And you can actually see this with kids still. They'll trade all sorts of trinkets and, and baubles in their school. Uh, I'm sure that you, you traded uh, you know, your carrots for something in your lunch, if anyone would trade with you. Um, probably not. <laughs> um, but you know, the trade and barter system is kind of how humanity started with money. Uh, then it became gold, silver, and precious metals. And now it's kind of become fiat, which is essentially money that can't be directly converted into anything that's considered a store of value like gold. But the government says it's worth something. And with the invention of the fiat system, we had a mass expansion of credit, um, wherein someone can just give you um, a piece of paper that says you're entitled to something or that you will pay someone back eventually. Essentially, if you think about it this way, all dollars are IOUs. They're not essentially anything because there's nothing backing them. It's just the government issues IOUs for people to be able to exchange IOUs with each other. And we just all agree that the IOUs are actually worth something. <laughs> when you start to think of dollars in those terms, you realize how fragile the actual economy is. The only reason it's not fragile is because the government says it's not fragile. Okay, now that you understand what money should be like, the characteristics, and um, what monies look like over time, what is money supposed to do, aka, you know, what are the actual functions of money, the economic functions of money? There are primarily three things. Number one, has to be able to be used as a medium of exchange. So basically, when you go out and you buy your chicken sandwich at Popeye's, <laughs> wherever you go to buy your chicken sandwiches, that is a medium of exchange. You're giving someone dollars, they're giving you something else back. That's an exchange. Sale, purchase, trade of goods between parties, any of that kind of stuff. It has to be useful for that. Number two, as a unit of account, uh, which is essentially what do businesses put their balance sheets in and their operating statements, their income statements in? What do we use to keep our budgets? As of right now, that's dollars. So, you know, obviously, Dollars are money by those two accounts. And then number three, as a store of value. So a store of value is an asset, a commodity, or a currency that maintains its value without depreciating at all. We will get into why the dollar does not fit that store of value mark, but it does hit the other two. Um, <laughs> it's important to note, and I, I think I have a note down here further, so I might say this twice, but the only things that money, that dollars, I should say, are good at are medium of exchange and unit of account. And the only reason that they're good at that is because the government says they have to be accepted for those things. <laughs> so if we, if we look at the current system and what money is supposed to do from an academic standpoint, dollars are only good at two of them, and they're only good at those two because the government says that they are, and everyone just accepts that and goes along with it. So if dollars aren't a good store of value, then what is? Well, the most, commonly, the most common thing that comes to people's mind first, right off the bat, just like that is gold, right? So you're, you immediately think, okay, gold, silver, diamonds, you know, basically precious metals and gems. Uh, totally true. But it's often said that Bitcoin is like this and that it's a hedge against inflation. So in order to understand if it is, we need to look at what drives inflation and what has that done to store of value assets. So this is a good point to break and just tell you, I know that that was a little dry. <laughs> I don't know if it gets much like better. I'm trying to keep you engaged just by like putting it in plain language. And if you want to learn about this stuff, I think you totally should. Um, 
you need to understand. I mean, if you if you really want to control your economic future, you need to listen to all this. <laughs> it doesn't have to be from me. You just have to get this information from somewhere. And I really think that that this is super important, and that's the only reason I'm saying it. Also, I'm excited about it. I like this kind of stuff. I don't like the what are the economic functions of money? What are the characteristics of money? I don't like any of that stuff. <laughs> but I had to dig into it in order to fully understand Bitcoin. And I'm trying to walk you down the same path so that you fully understand Bitcoin and why it's better than dollars. So we'll keep on we'll keep on going down this path and hopefully it just like catches on and you're like, oh man, that's actually cool. <laughs> the chances of that are low, I know, but I'm 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 still doing it. I don't care. I'm going forward. All right, we're going. We're diving straight into what is the Fed and what role does it play. So, um, okay. So the Fed is essentially intentionally complex so that you won't care. I'm going to try to put this into real terms. The Fed is a combination. It's an institution that is a combination of public and private parts. The public parts is essentially just the board of the Fed. The president nominates those members and the Senate confirms them. Okay. So that's, that's, that's the public part. The private part is the actual banks that are part of the Fed. So there's 12 Fed banks, Fed charter banks, I believe they're called. Um, and these are actually owned by private shareholders. Um, so who are the private shareholders in these banks? That's a great question. One reputable publication, the uh, Institutional Investor, uh, actually dug into this. Who owns the New York Fed? So for the New York Fed, just one of these banks. Um, it is, and this is a summary for you. I don't have to go into everyone who's who's a part of this ownership group, but it's mostly Citibank and J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, smaller shares are held by Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so it's just basically Wall Street. So Wall Street owns all of the federal banks. Just you know, put that in the back of your mind. Wall Street owns all of the federal banks, and um, they have a board that's appointed by the government. Uh, it's a and it's a joint executive slash legislative function. The appointing is. This gets really interesting when you realize there's kind of a revolving door going on between banks and the Fed. The Fed basically decides how much money is in the economy, and they tell the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, when to print and issue money, both physical money and digital money, and how much. <laughs> so we have a system wherein you know this board of the Fed, um, who works kind of for us as the people, but is basically beholden to what the banks want because the banks own the federal charter banks and they own the actual banks that put money into the economy. Um, they decide when to print an issue and they tell the treasury what to do. Very interesting. <laughs> now they can also create money, uh, the Fed can, by buying treasuries from, from the US treasury, but actually they don't buy direct, they buy from like private people who are go-betweens and they buy mortgage-backed securities, corporate debt, anything else that they need to soak up to add more liquidity to the market. And when they buy these assets, they're basically funneling money back into the market because they're buying up something that's illiquid and replacing it with liquid, which is money, just money, right? So for example, if, if you want to buy stock in a company, you get a share of their stock and you give the company money and that makes it more liquid because you're taking an illiquid asset and you're providing it with cash. Does that make sense? The Fed is doing the same thing, just with different assets. And on a much, much, much larger scale than, than you are doing. Now, individual banks, Wall Street banks, for example, have basically accounts at these federal banks, and they can credit and debit money from their accounts at these banks. Um, 
And and when they borrow money from the Fed, they're borrowing at the you know the federal funds rate, which is what we commonly call the Fed interest rate, right, or the base level interest rate. Um, so when I say the Fed has kept rates at near zero for a very long time, when I say that later in this podcast, understand that that's what I'm talking about. The rate at which the Fed will loan money to normal banks that you and I use every day, Chase, Wells Fargo, Citibank, all those kind of people. So why do we even have a Fed? Well, they're supposed to promote, they have, three, they have a mandate that's essentially three goals, uh, maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. So they are essentially um, trying to control three things that are interrelated and are very complex, and they can't control them directly. They have to pull various levers in order to control them. Right, so they can pull the interest rate lever. They can buy things up. Um, we talked about buying, you know, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities and all that kind of stuff. They can buy that kind of stuff, but they can't directly say, you know, employment is going to be at X percent. And we're going to make sure that happens by forcing companies to hire people. They can't do that. They can't go, you know, inflation is going to be at two percent because we say it's at two percent, and we are we are just saying that, and everyone has to believe it. Like they can't do anything like that. The inflation rate is the inflation rate based on what the Fed policy is and, and what we're seeing in actually unfold in real time in the, in the economy. And all three are tied together. So, you know, if we're talking about, you know, raising interest rates leads to decreased consumer activity, which leads to lower employment, which is also on their goals. If you lower the interest rates, as we've seen in the last decade or so, a little bit longer, um, you increase inflation usually over time. All of these things are tied together. So the Fed's job is essentially to keep it all stable. And to have conservative policy that makes the market more predictable. We want to avoid the swings of a typical market cycle. And the Fed is, is kind of like the watchkeeper um, of, of those metrics to keep them in line. So we've said inflation a little bit. What is inflation? Well, it's how much your dollar decreases in value over a given time. The Fed tries to hit 2% per year, um, which is supposed to foster economic growth in their opinion. Um, but... Uh, that we have seen in the last couple months has started to, start to run away from them. So uh, the Fed's target rate is 2%. That means that your savings are decreasing by that amount every year. So you know, if you have a dollar in the bank, and just like a savings account, because savings accounts pay almost nothing right now, <laughs> let's just say it's in a checking account to, to hold the numbers right. If you have a dollar in a, checkings, a checking account, geez, um, and it decreases... Uh, 2% a year. Over 10 years, your dollar is going to be worth 82 cents at the end of those 10 years. So that kind of sucks, right? <laughs> Think about that. If you multiply 0.82 by all the dollars in your savings checking, you know, all of your accounts, that's a significant haircut. It sucks, doesn't it? So um, 2% kind of sucks. But you also see the, the flip side of that is inflation just like run amok in places like Venezuela where, you know, one day hundred dollars i don't know i don't know the venezuelan conversion and all that and what the venezuelan currency is but let's just say a hundred dollars can buy you you know a, a bushel of apples i don't even know what a bushel of apples is <laughs> a chicken and eggs uh one day and then two months from now it can only buy you you know two eggs that's that's what runaway inflation looks like um so we're trying to avoid that in the u.s by just keeping it steady at two percent fairly conservative fiscal policy pretty reasonable um, I don't think they've been following the, they've been pulling the right levers in order to get us to 2%. All right. So now we got the basics. We got our training wheels. We're about to take the training wheels off because we're, we're, well, I guess not really. <laughs> this whole thing is training wheels. Um, we are going to jump into what is the economic environment right now. So it's less data, more just like 
you know, quotes and things like that. So I want to start with Michael Burry, who is a famous investor in the investing world, not to you probably, but you, if you've seen the movie The Big Short, you know who this guy is. He's the guy Christian Bale played in The Big Short. If you haven't seen that movie, you should watch that movie. It's pretty funny. There's some cursing and stuff, but um, it's, it's a pretty good movie and it, and it aptly sums up the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Michael Burry is well known for seeing the problems in the housing market, actually digging into what was in the mortgage-backed securities, figuring out that they were full of crap, and then shorting them. And he made essentially a billion dollars for his clients. I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but he made a ton of money for his clients, uh, a killing in the uh, financial collapse of 2008-2009. So uh, in April of 2020, this is you know last year when the stimulus was, was raging for COVID, uh, I have a few quotes here. I'm just going to throw them out and just give you dates and let you think about them. In April 2020, he said, when we start working and playing again, inflation may be in store. So there's a first little, hmm, that's a warning sign. Here's a second quote from Michael Burry. In February of 2021, so this year, he said, prepare for inflation, inflation pressure building. The Fed is monetizing $80 billion of treasury debt per month. We talked about that. Remember, they buy illiquid assets and provide liquid assets. And now comes trillions in stimulus slash debt plus reopening. So kind of sounding the alarm there that inflation is coming down the pike. Um, and funny, funny story. He, he basically said on Twitter that he was visited by federal regulators in March after he started tweeting all these things. So he just deactivated his Twitter account for like the millionth time. Um, but if you want to follow him on Twitter, he's actually quite amusing. He, uh, he tweeted some other things comparing current U.S. buildup to essentially what was happening in Weimar, Germany. Um, he said, <laughs> throughout these years, the structure was quietly building itself up for the blow. Germany's inflation cycle ran not for a year, but for nine years, representing eight years of gestation and only one year of collapse. That was written in 1974, about 1914 through 1923 in Germany. Um, and then he said, 2010 through 2021 colon gestation. So he's essentially just saying that, you know, the last 11 years in the US is essentially the same as what happened in Weimar Germany before a giant inflation bomb came and basically collapsed the economy. So not not exactly uh, a ringing endorsement for Fed policy. <laughs> um let's take a look at someone else. So who else has kind of sounded the alarm on what's happening in the economy? Well, there's this guy named Paul Tudor Jones. He's a billionaire hedge fund manager. Um Burry was also a hedge fund manager and became a billionaire, I think. Well, maybe not himself, but made his investors billions. Um, so kind of in the same camp. <laughs> um, but he said in May 2020, in a letter to his investors and his fund, he said, we are witnessing the great monetary inflation and gives us an acronym of GMI, an unprecedented expansion of every form of money unlike anything the developed world has ever seen. At the end of the day, the best profit maximizing strategy is to own the fastest horse. Just own the best performer and not get wed to an intellectual side that might leave you weeping in the performance dust because you thought you were smarter than the market. If I am forced to forecast, my bet is it will be Bitcoin. So that's qu quite interesting, actually, from, from someone high up in the, uh, in the market. Now, there are a whole bunch of naysayers, too. I'm obviously selecting the ones I agree with. So if you want to go look up the naysayers, go look up the naysayers. There are people who say Bitcoin's going to zero and it's worth nothing. I just think they don't fully understand Bitcoin. Uh, given their criticisms, I just think they haven't done a lot of homework. <laughs> so uh, you can be the judge on your own. Go, go look up some of those Bitcoin is going to zero quotes and see who's saying it and judge whether or not you agree with them.
So here's the last one about sounding the alarm. So there's this guy named Patrick Artis. He is a senior economics advisor at a French bank and a professor at the Paris School of Economics. French bank has a name, but I don't even know how to say it. Maybe it's Natixis? Natixis? I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe it's pronounced Frenchly. I don't know how to say that Frenchly. Um, but here's a, actually three quotes from him. So we're going to go down this. Uh, the money supply cannot be increased continuously relative to income. As sooner or later, demand for money, which is linked to savings and income, can no longer increase. So can't continually blow up the money supply, which is what's been happening. Rising relative asset prices cannot be extrapolated. If they become too high, the savings of asset buyers will no longer suffice to buy, leading inevitably to a downward correction in prices. Everything can't continue to rise in prices. Inflation can't keep going up because people won't be able to buy anything at some point. It's the summation for you. If wage earnings do not receive productivity gains over a long period, demand for goods and services will become too weak to absorb production, which grows rapidly when earnings are invested. So if wage earnings don't grow, then uh, demand for goods and services is going to decline because people won't be able to afford anything. <laughs> so these are all like obvious things that we know about the market, but it's just, it's just good to know that these smart people are thinking about it. All that said... The Fed has kept interest rates incredibly low since the 2008-2009 financial crisis. The highest they got in the period since then was 2.5%, and that was right before COVID hit, and they basically dropped them straight back down to zero right away. <laughs> so uh, what happens with interest rates being low, it, it basically props up consumer spending because you're lending to banks at a lowered rate, which means banks can lend to you at a lower rate. So for example, the federal funds rate is zero, banks get free money but they lend it to you at a cheaper rate because they're all competing with each other. So maybe your mortgage would have cost you at a 2.5% interest. I don't know what they were. They're probably like uh, 6% or something like that before the crash, right? Before the, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. Now they're at 2.93%, somewhere in that range for, for, for a mortgage because they can afford to, to uh, charge you less on the interest, which makes it easier for people to afford that house payment because you're paying less interest over time. So um, good and bad comes from that. Mostly, <laughs> mostly good if you're trying to dig yourself out of a hole, but you shouldn't overdo it because keeping a lot of money pumping into the economy pushes up the prices of things. So uh, not only does it push up the price of things, it also pushes down the bonds and the savings markets because there's no, there's no yield on bonds and savings anymore. Banks don't need your money in a savings account. They have, you know, access to easy, cheap money whenever they want. So uh, you're not going to keep your money in a savings account or in a bond, which is what people typically do when they hit 50, 60, 70, 80. They start to move their money out of higher risk assets into lower risk assets. What does this mean? Well, this means that we're having greater exposure to a downturn because we have all these people who are in these age brackets, you know, I don't know, about 40 probably start owning bonds. You start moving some of your accounts into bonds and about, you know, when you're ready to retire, most of your money is going to be in bonds, I think. Uh, or in some kind of stable asset, right? People aren't really doing that as much because you can't get a yield there. Your money's not growing at all. So you might as well keep it in a riskier asset for longer because the stock market's doing great, right? So, and then in the event of a downturn, all your money is exposed because it's in the stock market. So it's just a riskier asset. Now, inflation <laughs> is a hot topic right now. The CPI, like I just said, just came out. Inflation spiked uh, last month. So we saw, I mean, it, it really sparked in May, spiked in May, but we got the number for that last month. The May number was about 5%, which is a lot. It's pretty high. 
Uh, and the June number, which just came out, is 5.4%. So it doesn't look like it's trending better. <laughs> um, if, if that continued, if 5% continued for 10 years, it's not going to happen because that would be crazy. But uh, just so you get the picture of what that would look like, a dollar would deteriorate to about 60 cents over 10 years. And that's just, you know, one times 0.95 to the 10th power. That's, that's how you calculate that. So that's a, that's a lot of, that's 40% of your money gone in 10 years. So that, that's significant. Um, the Fed will say that that is just transitory. My question is, how are they so confident? First of all, they can't predict. All, we, we've shown during the 2008-2009 pandemic that they were not good at predicting in the future. Um, but also, monetary policy that they've been pursuing kind of says the opposite, that it's going to continue. And we'll kind of look at that. Um, another important note is, because of inflation over time, a dollar today um, is only worth, so 1914 is kind of when we went under the current dollar monetary system. Uh, a dollar today is worth four cents of purchasing power in 1914. So that's what inflation does to your money over time. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that's insane. There are people who 1914 doesn't seem, I mean, they probably weren't alive. If they were alive, they were super young. They're listening to this podcast. Like, how old did you have to be? 107, something crazy like that. Um, so, so you probably don't remember 1914 if you're listening to this. But if you're in the older age categories, <laughs> You might think, you know, my parents saw that or my grandparents saw that. Um, and a dollar today is worth four cents then? Wow. Okay. So why do I think inflation is going to persist? Well, look at the cost of the pandemic. It's pretty straightforward. We had, and I didn't know these numbers until I went looking for them. You have to actually go looking for them. The total cost of the pandemic and stimulus turned out to be 5.9 trillion was authorized by Congress. So that's the first number you need to know. But only $5.2 trillion is expected to be used um, as stimulus for the COVID pandemic. Now, you might not understand what that means in real terms, because what does really trillions mean? <laughs> you know, none of us will ever see trillions in our lifetime. We never see trillions in our bank account. Most of us, almost all of us, unless you're, you know, in the, in the, the 1% of the 1% of the 1% of the richest. Um, <laughs> so, uh, just to put that in context, it's, it's about 25 times the expected net worth of Jeff Bezos. 25 times. Expected because we don't know for sure, but we assume. Um, 25 times what Jeff Bezos is worth. That's how much we spent on this, on this uh, stimulus for the pandemic. And that's money that gets added to the national debt, which is insanely high right now. I don't even know what it is, but if you want to, you can go online and look at usdebtclock.org. We do it right now just to see. Um, we are at $28 trillion in debt, which means debt per citizen is 85000 debt per taxpayer is 20, 226000 and our annual revenue per citizen is only 10000 <laughs> So it would take you 22 years, uh, 23, to pay off all your debt per taxpayer based on the revenue per citizen. Um, so that's fun. So uh, that's, first of all, just the amount of stimulus that's added to the national debt. There's a lot of hidden money. You probably didn't know this. I'm trying to, trying to get the whole picture for you. There's a lot of hidden money that is not captured in that $5.2 trillion. How much is it? About another $3.3 trillion. And where is that coming from? Well, the Fed made purchases. Remember how we talked earlier about how they can buy mortgage-backed securities and treasuries and all sorts of stuff? Uh, business, uh, what are they called? Bonds. Um, they can buy all sorts of stuff like that. And they did during the pandemic. 
They bought $3.3 trillion worth of it, which injected cash into the economy, doubled the Fed's balance sheet because they bring those things onto their balance sheet when they buy them. Um, so they essentially doubled uh, their liabilities. And uh, they created money out of thin air, basically. So <laughs> we have a total of $8.5 trillion in stimulus. $8.5 trillion. $8.5 trillion. I just want to keep saying that <laughs> so that you understand how much money that is. When uh, President Trump was sworn into office, the debt was around $20 trillion. And I think when he left, it was close to 24 23 somewhere around there. Um, maybe 25 Somewhere in that 23 to $25 trillion range. Now we're at $28 trillion. So, um, it is not going well for us, I would say. <laughs> and, and just so you understand, you know, 20 trillion when Trump was sworn in, 8.5 trillion is nearly half of that, right? 8.5 over 20, 43%. So it's 43% of our total national debt is what we used in stimulus. Now, not all that gets added to the national debt, like I said, because some of it goes on the Fed's balance sheet and uh, they just make money out of thin air. But still, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. Okay. Uh, with this, um, this is a fun little factoid. Remember, we said five point two trillion dollars was what was we paid in stimulus. Guess how much it would pay for the government to pay off all debt, consumer debt, student loan debt, you know, mortgage debt for the bottom fifty percent of all Americans, all of their debt. Fifty percent, all half of all Americans, which are you know typically the least, uh, the most disadvantaged, I should say, um, uh, among us. It would take five point one trillion to pay all that off. If the government would have just said, no, we're just going to pay off everything for everyone but below this level. <laughs> now, obviously, some of that stimulus went to hospitals. It went to optimizing supply chains. It, it went to a whole bunch of places, infrastructure. But that gives you an idea of the scope of the stimulus we're talking about. And that's only, you know, that's just over half of it because you're talking about another $3.4 trillion that we actually did spend. So uh, that's a lot of money. So. Here's another quote for you. This thing, this whole podcast is just peppered with quotes, so I just want you to understand that. Um, this is from Mike Wilson, the Morgan Stanley chief U.S. equity strategist. He said, it's fair to say we have never observed money supply growth as high as it is today. The Fed may not be in control of money supply growth, which means they won't have control of inflation either if it gets going. We just talked about how inflation just started going, didn't we? Okay, so is the Fed doing its job well? Well, you be the judge. I think doubling the size of balance sheet in about two years, doubling the size of their own balance sheet in about two years, keeping interest rates near zero, near zero. Remember, we said they only got to 2.5% for the last 12 to 13 years. That is historically unprecedented. We've seen interest rates go anywhere from zero all the way up to like 20, I think almost 30 one time, but that was, that was an outlier. So, you know, the average is probably somewhere between five to 10 in recent, recent memory, but keeping it at 2.5% for literally a decade and a half almost is insane. Remember, the Fed's job is stability. They're supposed to be fairly conservative, at least keep the metrics conservative. Um, maybe not be conservative in their policy if they have to write the ship, but they're supposed to keep it stable. Um, you be the judge whether or not you think injecting eight and a half trillion dollars in stimulus into the economy over the course of two years was a, was a good decision. So. Uh, I think there's a coming potential fall. I don't know when it's going to happen. Um, people always say, you know, it's different this time. And they usually say that in an optimistic way, like, 
no, it's different this time because the housing markets are actually on really solid footing. By the way, they were saying that in 2008 and 2009 as well. <laughs> the housing markets on really solid footing. Uh, supply is really low, which is why prices are really high. Um, borrowers are more well qualified. We're not doing as many subprime loans. Um, it, borrowers' credit histories are really solid. Their savings are really good. Um, it's different this time around. The metrics aren't the same. Is it different this time? Well, I think it's such a stupid argument because it's always different, right? All the metrics are always different. It's a, but is it the same outcome? That's what we want to know. What are the risks inherent? And can we see those risks? Do we know what those risks are? I think we can identify definitely four at least. Number one, interest rates can't go lower. They literally can't go lower for, for longer, really. They, they've never been lower because it's there at 0%. How do you go lower than 0%? <laughs> number two the government has never printed more money government has never printed more money in history it's never made more money out of nothing in history and has never authorized so much stimulus in a two-year span in history number three stock prices are at all-time highs the market's never been better and it continued to grow despite a global pandemic in the middle of injecting eight and a half trillion dollars into the economy to save it <laughs> That doesn't sound completely divorced from reality for you. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe you think, okay, the eight and a half trillion just propped it up. That's exactly what happened. But <laughs> does that mean it's going to be sustainable? <laughs> That's the question. Number four, the wealth divide in the US has never been wider. Never. Never been wider. The richest have never been richer and the poorest have never been poor. Isn't that crazy? Now, I don't know by what metrics that comes from, but this is from an article in a respectable paper. I don't remember. I literally read 100 articles to get this thing together. Not literally. It's probably like 20 to 30 articles to get this thing together. Should not have said literally, but you get the point. Okay, so uh, well, let's turn back to Michael Burry. What does Michael Burry think of is going on in the market right now? Well, we already know he's compared us to Weimar Germany um, and has said that this is an inflation bubble coming. He says, people always ask me what's going on in the markets. It's simple. Greatest speculative bubble of all time, in all things, by two orders of magnitude. So those are some pretty strong words. I mean, he tends to talk like that. <laughs> At the same time, that's a little worrying, right? So what's going to happen when the music stops? Let's turn back to that artist guy, Patrick Artis, from the Paris School, Paris School of Economics. The stabilization of these variables will lead to a very drastic crisis due to faster growth in wages and inflation, a restrictive monetary policy, a fall in wealth and asset prices, and a recession caused by a fall in domestic demand. So, what's he saying? Recession. Maybe depression. That's what he's saying. So, what typically happens in order for the market to reset? Well, you know, you typically get inflation for a while. How long it goes, no one can really know. I mean, I think just looking at those factors we talked about, interest rates can't go lower, governments never print more money, stock prices are all-time highs, wealth divide is never wider. Look at the housing market. That should tell you a lot too. Um, usually what happens is inflation hits, right? Usually it gets significant enough that the Fed has to lift interest rates because they have to curtail the money that's flowing into the markets, right? Because you want to curtail inflation. Then interest rates cause stock prices to fall. Why? Well, there's a few mechanisms. Number one is earnings forecasts are less rosy because you have to factor in a higher level of interest rates to borrow money and all sorts of stuff. You have, it basically affects all your forecasting from, from that point on. People don't want to overpay for equities anymore. So you know, if, people, if, if the stock market's the highest it's ever been, people will be less likely and have less money, to be honest, to invest in the market. 
uh, and they're not going to overpay for something that's not worth what they're paying for. It. Um, and then bonds are competitive to stocks again. So bonds all of a sudden have a yield on them because the banks will will uh, borrow money from people, or you know, municipal bonds or you know, uh, business bonds. All of these people will want to borrow money from people again at at a competitive interest rate if the Fed rate is pretty high. Now. So that causes the stock prices to fall. Now, interest service on government debt increases, which means that they reduce government spending typically because they have to pay more in interest so they don't have enough free cash flowing. Um, Less free money and less government spending, less direct stimulus in this case, means less consumer spending and uh, more saving typically in hoarding and, uh, you know, generally smarter, smarter consumer behavior. But that leads to less consumer activity. And the United States is a consumer economy. Our economy moves forward when people spend money. And people have been spending money like bananas recently. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but people have been buying all sorts of stuff with their free money. I'm guilty of this as well. I just bought like a a Bowflex stationary bike for home. I love it. But (laughs) at the same time, everyone's going out and buying all sorts of stuff. Um, And if you haven't noticed this, I don't know where you're living. But uh, that's, that's another sign. Something's coming. Um, the spiral usually starts with inflation or interest rates uh, staying low too long, and then you know the rest follows. So, how do you, the responsible, forward-looking American, best protect yourself for the future? Okay, well, the simple answer is hard money. Find a good store of value. Let's define hard money real quick. It used to be mostly in reference to gold because gold is physical and, well, you know, hard. You can tap on it as hard. Um, But what's the concept behind it? We need to understand the concept behind it because we can't just say, well, hard money is things that are hard. That doesn't work. Uh, Money is, hard money is money with sound characteristics that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, and they have good economic functionality. They have enough, they fulfill the functions of economic activity that, that are required. We talked about those three things earlier too. So once people realize the superiority of a money's characteristics and functionality, historically other assets are quickly depreciate in relation in price in relation to those new things. So let's look at an example. In the olden days, people used to use stones and beads uh, to transact. Then they became gold and silver coins. Why? Well, better characteristics of money. Coins, bills, even are more divisible, more durable. Um, there's a limited supply of like gold and things like that. They're more uniform and they're more acceptable. They're shinier, right? <laughs> I think. Uh, example number two: gold and silver is replaced by fiat. Why? Divisibility, portability, uh, especially in the digital form. Government mandates um, also say <laughs> that it has to be used as a medium of exchange and a unit of account, so it's has more functionality. So obviously, we see that things that are better forms of money overtake things that are worse forms of money. That's how history has shown us these things evolve. All right, here's the finale. Actually, it's quite a bit more. (laughs) I'm at 46 minutes. I think this is going to be over an hour, but we'll we'll see. So let's look at Bitcoin versus dollars. Number one, durability. I think they have different vulnerabilities. Bitcoin can't be stolen like physical property because it's really just information. But the information of Bitcoin in which, in which account the coins are located, um, how exactly you can move those, that, I mean, that can be changed, right? You can, you, can, you can log into someone's wallet if you get access to their private key, and you can essentially steal them by transferring 
those quote-unquote coins to another wallet. However, if you're doing it right, usually these keys are encrypted. It's usually a 16-word key uh, that is unique to your wallet, and they're usually encrypted and stored somewhere safer than, than you would store, for example, your bank login information for a USD account. Um, dollars have the same digital vulnerabilities, in my opinion, if not more, because you're just using a username and a password to log into a bank's website than Bitcoin does because you're using a 16-word passphrase that is usually encrypted if you're smart. Don't, don't just write it down on, a, on your desk somewhere. Um, and, and also dollars can be physically stolen if you have dollars and coins, right? If you keep those in a safe, someone can break into your house and steal the safe. They can't do that really with Bitcoin unless you pulled them onto a hardware wallet. We won't get into the specifics of that. Just know that most people, uh, I, wouldn't, I don't know about most people, and most people who are new to Bitcoin don't keep their coins on a hardware wallet. It's quite uh, the advanced proposition and mostly people who've been in Bitcoin for a while are doing that. It's actually a smart thing to do, but it's just hard. So most people don't. So that's durability. I think Bitcoin wins that. Portability. Bitcoin is everywhere at once. We talked about this. Uh, you know, distributed ledger means, <laughs> I kind of said we wouldn't go into this, but I kind of have to. A distributed ledger means that the ledger's everywhere. So it's on essentially all these different miners and uh, all these different nodes everywhere, um, which means it can be accessed from anywhere also. So Bitcoin is not, your coins are not really located anywhere because they're kind of everywhere. The, it's just a ledger that says where the coins are. Their coins don't, again, they don't exist. It's no physical thing. It's, a tan, it's an intangible um, abstract concept. But your Bitcoin wallet is accessible anywhere on the globe. So if you travel from, from the United States over to Europe anywhere, or even Africa, Antarctica, if you have access to the internet, you have access to Bitcoin, which at this point, the internet is everywhere. It's certainly going to be everywhere when, you know, satellite internet is more widespread. So, so that's not really an issue. Um, so Bitcoin is portable anywhere, whereas dollars can't be transported across borders without taxes, regulatory implications, etc. You're going to encounter a whole lot of problems if you try to transfer money or, you know, smuggle money in bags <laughs> across borders. So winner there, Bitcoin. I have no problem. I could up and leave to Europe tomorrow and still have access to my Bitcoin wallet, still transfer it anywhere I want. That's more portability, in my opinion. All right. Divisibility. Each Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million parts. USD is also divisible, but it's a little more complex because you have to take a 20 and convert it into 10s and 5s and 1s. It's a little weird. Bitcoin is just, and this gets into uniformity, Bitcoin is cleaner, simpler. Uh, it's kind of like more akin to the metric system because it's in a and a factor of 10. Um, and there's no strange denominations like $2 bills and $50 bills, whereas USD is more like imperial. It's like we've decided these are the denominations and you just kind of have to break everything up into them. Now that changes in the digital form. Obviously, it's the same as Bitcoin, essentially, because you're just doing you know, decimal numbers. Um, it's a little different because Bitcoin has what are called Bitcoins. And then there are the smaller measurement, which are called Satoshis or SATs for short. Within each Bitcoin, there's 100 million sats. So I think in the future, we're going to start referring to Bitcoin. Um, obviously, Bitcoin is going to be Bitcoin, but we're, start, we're going to start talking about the, the individual measures of it a little bit more in terms of sats, like how many sats do you own versus how many Bitcoin do you own? Because again, most people are not going to own a full Bitcoin. Most people now don't own a full Bitcoin, even if they're investing in Bitcoin. Fun story, I used to own like two or three of them in 2015 when they were like 300 bucks piece and i went to this company called bitbond 
and loan them out to people in like developing countries who needed access to funds, which is like my first experience with cryptocurrency. And I thought it was kind of cool, but none of them paid me back. Well, like maybe like, I don't know, probably funded 20 or 30 loans in part. And um, the ones who paid me back, maybe like 10 of them, <laughs> I immediately cashed out the Bitcoin for dollars and just took it and was like, this is stupid because everyone stole my money and didn't pay it back. So I got mad about it. And they eventually sent me like charge-offs where they're like, you can pursue this in civil court or whatever. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to hire a lawyer to recruit, you know, 20 bucks. Nowadays, <laughs> that money, that Bitcoin is worth, you know, I, I think I had one loan that was worth half a Bitcoin. So at the time it was a hundred and something bucks. <laughs> now it's, you know, at the height it was 30,000. Now it's $15,000 or something like that, right? 32, 33, uh, 17-ish thousand dollars it would have been. But, you know, you live and you learn. Also, it wasn't worth that when I would have been able to collect it because you have a little time limit on when you can collect it. Um, actually, recently they charged off one that was like 2.2 Bitcoin. I just feel like it's morally, uh, I don't know, wrong to pursue someone for 0.2 Bitcoin when you lended it to them at, what, 60 bucks? And now it's worth, I don't know, what is 0.2 Bitcoin? I got to do the math on that. 6,000. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Uh, not two Bitcoin, Google, point two Bitcoin. Why do they do that? Every time you type like one Bitcoin into Google, it will go two Bitcoin equals blah, blah, blah. But point two equals uh, 64, yeah, 6,400. So anyway, uh, I quickly got scared off of Bitcoin because I thought no one's following any rules in this game. And that was true at the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, I wish I would have kept on, kept those in that account, just like, had them sitting there that would have been nice to come back to uh you know 90 60 i don't know well by the time everyone paid me back 30 grand or something i don't know would have been a lot of money um okay where were we <laughs> sorry for the aside um we were at limited supply so okay i think bitcoin wins in divisibility and uniformity based on what i said you can argue one way or another those are kind of close um limited supply bitcoin is absolutely scarce meaning there's ever only going to be 21 million coins according to the protocol and they're mined at certain intervals by the miners. We don't have to get in the mechanism for that. Just know it's a good system that keeps the network secure. Um, almost 20% of those coins, the original coins, are gone forever. They're just lost, locked in wallets somewhere. People didn't believe in Bitcoin like me. Some people invested in Bitcoin when it was at, you know, in 2011, 2012, 2013, when it was at almost nothing. And then uh, forgot their past phrase because they were like, this is worth, what, $10? And now it's worth <laughs> infinitely more <laughs> so so a lot of them are just lost and you know there have been hacks there have been people uh even in recent times who've just lost their passphrases to their wallets there are ways to mitigate this it's pretty easy to get around you just set up a multi-sig wallet which requires you to have two passphrases in order to unlock it um but even if you lose one of your keys then you still have two there are also three of five multi-sig wallets this is getting way into the weeds but i just want you to know Bitcoin, it's not like if you lose your password, um, you lost access to it forever. If you've set it up right, you have to set it up right in the first place. Um, and most of it is just like most people who are starting in Bitcoin just have a custody account at a place like Coinbase and they manage your Bitcoin for you. Cash App is the same way. They manage your Bitcoin for you and you just log into their website and it shows you what, what your Bitcoin is worth. That's probably a smarter way if you're just starting. <laughs> if you want to move off of that because you don't trust the custodians, you think maybe government regulation is coming, 
there are safe ways to do that, to move into what's called a multi-sig wallet, um, where there's even more security than being on a, on a custodian account. So uh, I just want you to know that that's not like, that's not a risk. Um, USD supply, on the other hand, is always increasing. Even in non-crisis times, we talked about the 2% inflation rate that the Fed targets. They want it to increase because they think that that leads to economic growth. So I think the winner here, Bitcoin, obviously. Acceptability, um, USD is kind of ubiquitous, so it's definitely winning this one. Uh, more acceptable. I will say Bitcoin is rapidly improving in this area. There are second layer networks on top of Bitcoin like Lightning. It's called the Lightning Network, and it's what El Salvador is using. El Salvador, I don't know if you know, made Bitcoin legal tender. <laughs> so they made it. Uh, they made people have to accept Bitcoin, and they're using primarily the Lightning Network to do this, which is just an app on your phone where you store your Bitcoin. Your Bitcoin is not on the main Bitcoin network. It's off of it on a top layer network where transactions are much faster than on the uh, standard normal Bitcoin network. The reason for this is that the Bitcoin network has really slow transaction times, which is why you know Bitcoin as a part of its normal you know, standard blockchain network is not going to be a good medium of exchange. But if you pull it off of that and have a network that's designed to be way faster, it will be faster. Less secure, faster though. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You have the main network if you're holding your Bitcoin there where it's very secure. Then you can also pull your coins up to a lightning network where you can use it as a medium of exchange if you wanted to. Um, that's a very basic level understanding of that because I feel I have a very basic level understanding of that. Um, if you want to research more about that, just Google Lightning Network Bitcoin and, and you'll be able to read all about it. You will never understand everything about Bitcoin and that's okay. Just try to wrap your head around as much of it as you can and just go from there. There are experts in Bitcoin who don't understand everything about Bitcoin because it's such a large network and there's so many parts to it. Um, but I think Bitcoin does a good job of like making you reconsider everything you thought you knew about money and about the past and about the future. And it really helps people get more educated on a lot of different topics. So by my account, uh, that is Bitcoin winning five out of the six categories uh, of characteristics of money. Here's a quote from Plato. Plato, the philosopher in Greece, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, you know, those three, those three, uh, intellectual giants. He said, if you are prudent, you will give the same counsel to your pupils also, that they are never to converse with anybody except you and each other, for it is the rare that is precious, while water is cheapest, though best. In essence, this is saying, what is limited in supply is more valuable. What is rare is more valuable. It doesn't matter if something is necessary, like water. <laughs> it is cheap because it is plentiful right? If water suddenly were less plentiful and limited in supply, it would get extremely expensive very quickly because it's also necessary for life. Okay. So I just want to point out that people say scarcity does not connote value. That is entirely untrue <laughs> on its face. <laughs> scarcity is value. Um, as long as there is a need for it or an application of the thing, and scarcity is value. And Bitcoin, we already said, has better characteristics than USD for being money. Now, um, the economic functions of money, let's go through these really real quick because I'm running long on time here. Short of money, but long on time. Or is it and long on time? I don't know. Um, you know that song, right? Paolo Nutini. Go look it up. Paolo, P-A-O-L-O-N-U-T-I-N-I. -I. New shoes. Good song. Uh, probably aging myself because i don't know when the song came out <laughs> so 
Sorry, that just reminded me of it. Short on money and long on time because we're talking about money. How perfect is that? 2006. Holy crap. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was an aside. Let's keep moving forward. We got to keep moving forward. Medium of exchange. Can Bitcoin be a good medium of exchange? We already talked about this a little bit with the uh, the Lightning Network. I think eventually Bitcoin acceptance is going to be as easy as Apple Pay or Google Pay. It's just It's just a matter of time. The mechanisms are already in place. The apps already exist. It's just that people have to be open to accepting it as a form of payment, which I think comes with time. Um, as people realize how good it is at, uh, at this, it's not perfect. I don't. I don't think it will be the preferred medium of exchange, but I think it will be acceptable as a medium of exchange. Unit of account. So, because we still total everything in fiat, because the government says we will, um, this will probably be the last domino to fall. So, I think this is like you know, maybe twenty years down the line. Right now, you think of Bitcoin in terms of dollars, right? Everyone does. You see, uh, right now it just fell to like thirty-two thousand dollars. It was at one point up to sixty-four, something like that, thousand dollars per coin. Eventually, you're going to start thinking of other things in terms of Bitcoin. I'm almost certain of this because, I mean, think about how you think of dollars, right? How do you think of dollars? You think of it in terms of what you, what it can buy you. If all of a sudden Bitcoin becomes more prevalent, you're going to start thinking of Bitcoin in the same way. You're going to start comparing it to what it can buy you, especially when it becomes a better metric than dollars because of inflation. Uh, it becomes a better metric for what something is actually worth over time. Remember, like, you remember like 10 years ago, you used to be able to go out to a restaurant or just like a fast casual place and get a meal for like anywhere from eight to $10 in LA. Um, that is, that is definitely not the case anymore. You're spending anywhere from 15 to 20 now. So, you know, dollars kind of fluctuate with what you can buy with them because of inflation. I think Bitcoin will be a better measure of exactly where that where things are pegged, especially once the supply stabilizes, once institutional holders have accumulated a lot of it because they're going to soak up the supply in the market, so the fluctuations of Bitcoin is going to they're going to get smaller. You're going to see it. Essentially the graph looks like crazy right now, up and down, up and down, up and down. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, basically in a taper down. So there's less swings. This is my prediction. <laughs> Feel free to agree or disagree with it, but it makes sense from an economic standpoint. Okay. Last thing, store value. I think it's better than dollars. Why? Because there's a fixed supply. It's absolute scarcity. It's hard to move it when it's on the blockchain. Hard to steal. Um, secured by blockchain and proof of work. If you need to look those concepts up, you should. I'm not going to take the time needed to explain them right now, but just know that's very secure. Um, it's ultra portable even across boundaries, state boundaries, because I can't really police it. Um, and it can still be used as a medium of exchange more easily than gold today. And if governments crack down on Bitcoin, will it see a, a minor price decrease in the short term? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe a major one. Um, but the important thing is they can't really stop it. You know why? You just move it to your own wallet. Move, move your Bitcoin to your own multi-sig wallet and then uh, install a VPN on whatever device you're using so they can't tell who's accessing it. Maybe go through an encrypted network like Tor. These are what hackers use all the time. <laughs> but there are ways to be anonymous online. And um, if you needed to, you would figure that out real quick. And uh, all of a sudden, Bitcoin network is still alive and well. They can't shut down all the miners because, to be fair, they don't really know where all the miners are. They can shut down a lot of them, but not all of them. The network will continue to live on. It doesn't matter what you do. Something like 70% of the Bitcoin network was in China, by the way. And China straight up outlawed it. I don't know if you heard this recently. This was pretty recent, like last month. Um, China outlawed Bitcoin mining and all of those miners just said, okay, they all went offline and they're all moving to other countries right now. <laughs> and the network uh, automatically adjusts the difficulty of mining to how many miners are on the network and how much computing power there is. So the network 
automatically just absorb the hit. Has a little bit longer processing times and a little bit higher fees, but it keeps trucking on. Something like 70% of the network came offline and just keeps trucking on. Gives you an idea of how durable Bitcoin is. All right, so why is Bitcoin the future? So the Bitcoin is the future because it is a better form of money. Here's a quote. Once again, here's the last quote for you from uh, Friedrich Hayek, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, and he said this, I believe, in 1984. Good book, by the way, if you haven't read it. Um, he said this in 1984. I don't believe we shall ever have a good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. That is, we can't take them violently out of the hands of government. All we can do is, by some sly, roundabout way, introduce something that they can't stop. Stop. We talked about that. We just said that. I, that was not a planned transition, by the way. <laughs> I just went into talking about how the Bitcoin network can't be stopped, and then I had a quote immediately thereafter that says it can't be stopped. Um, well, I wasn't talking specifically about Bitcoin, but Hayek predicted that something like this would probably come around, and we have to use it to get around government. Um, and this is, I think, I think Bitcoin is that thing. Why is Bitcoin that thing when you have like a bajillion cryptocurrencies? Well, it's in the it's in the way the network works. First of all, it's the first. Secondly, it's a proof of work network, which most of these altcoins run on some kind of proof of stake network. Look up proof of work versus proof of stake. Proof of work is better for security long term. Bitcoin also has more adherence. It has a bigger following. It has more miners. It is uh, just mathematically really really smart in the way it works and um it just has this like mythology about it people underestimate the power of mythology and narrative satoshi nakamoto nobody knows who this guy is in essence bitcoin was basically created by an unknown faceless man who essentially is like god right think about how people used to think about money people used to think money came from the gods right in olden days bitcoin essentially came to be obviously we know it's a person who made it but we don't know if it's a group of people we don't know if it's an individual an individual person the narrative matters in the foundation of something it's the first it's ingenious if you look into how exactly bitcoin works and it's actually really secure and it's worked for a long time network's been around now for i don't know when 2009 is when it started so it's been around for a long time and uh when it first came out it was worth nothing you could just get as many as you wanted for nothing don't you wish you could rewind the clock? That's that's a great like uh, you know time travel movie. If you can time travel, people will talk about betting on sports. That's that's peanuts compared to just going back in time, scooping up as much Bitcoin as you can for no money or fractions of a cent, and just sitting on it for all you have to do is sit on it for ten years. You can cash out some at the sixty four thousand dollar peak. <laughs> wait wait on the rest for um you know what I think is coming, which is eventually. Look, let's talk about it in real terms. If Bitcoin eventually reached the market cap of gold, I think I did this same calculation in my investment thing. The market cap of gold is around 11.5 trillion. So if we take 11.5, that's 11 million, billion, trillion, divided by 21 million. That's assuming the whole amount of Bitcoin is in circulation, which we know it's not. Each Bitcoin should be worth $547,619. Let's deduct, you know, uh, 10%, 20%, what is that? 21, 21 minus 4.2, 16.8. So let's say 17. Just keep it round. 
17 million divided by so it's actually worth six hundred and seventy six thousand dollars four hundred and seventy six hundred seventy six thousand four hundred and seventy dollars that's a lot of money per bitcoin that's only the market cap of gold that's only if bitcoin absorbs more of the market cap of gold which you know we've already proven why it's better than gold and dollars so imagine that it takes also some of the liquid um value that's in currency right now from all governments everywhere <laughs> imagine it takes some of the uh, value of derivatives some of the value of real estate some of the value of the stock market you can start to see real quick how bitcoin gets to be worth each bitcoin gets to be worth a million dollars very quickly if not more even if it doesn't take everything and there are videos out there on youtube and, and the like saying bitcoin is going to take the value of everything by bitcoin maximalists just disregard those. You might want to watch them because they're funny. But um, <laughs> you know, it's it's not. Uh, it's become like a catchphrase for Bitcoin maximalists. Everything divided by twenty-one million. That's not what's going to happen. Trust me, that's not what's going to happen. But is it going to be a lot of things divided by twenty-one million? Yeah, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be chunks of each sector of value in the economy divided by twenty-one million, and it's actually going to be divided by seventeen-ish million. And that number is going to decrease over time because people are going to keep losing Bitcoin because people are not very smart. <laughs> By that point, we'll talk about people losing hundreds of thousands of Satoshis as though it's a ton of money, because it will be. Um, and right now, you can buy a million Satoshis. Let me, let me convert this so I give you a good number. A million Satoshis to USD. Uh, you can buy a million Satoshis for $300. This is like my mistake in 2015, right? A Bitcoin was worth $300. Now a million Satoshis is worth $300. That 10x, no, 10x, 20, 100x, that 100x, uh, 300 times 10 is 300 or 3,000 times another 10 is 30,000. So that literally went up 100 times since I owned my first Bitcoins. Do you think it's going to happen again? Maybe not over the same time horizon, but I definitely think it's going to happen again. <laughs> okay. So you can secure the system, you can extend Occupy Wall Street, you can get around uh, the big banks. The federal system is garbage. Um, it's, it's absolute garbage. I already showed you. Banks basically lend money to themselves at zero dollars and give it to you and charge you money. Isn't that crazy? And they control the treasury. The Fed controls the treasury. That's insane to me. Um, so you can basically get around this corrupt system. You can take control of your future. You can screw over banks, which everyone's been wanting to do since 2008. And when one guy was convicted for, <laughs> for doing illegal and uh, immoral things in the banking system and ruining everyone else's life, you can seize the reins of power in the U.S. Number one, you have to acquire Bitcoin. The best way to do this, the smartest way to do this over time is to dollar cost average, meaning you just put a little bit in every day. And eventually that starts to look pretty good. But what that does is it reduces your risk in Bitcoin because you're putting, first of all, a little bit of money in every day. You're not doing these huge lump sum drops, but also your cost basis, what you paid for Bitcoin over time is averaged out. So you are minimizing the highs, you're minimizing the lows as well. So that's, that's the smartest way to do it. Just dollar cost average. How can you do this? Uh, well, you can do this through a company called, this is how I do it. So I'm just going to tell you how I do it and why I do it that way. You go to swanbitcoin.com. There's a referral program. I debated doing that, but I feel like shady about that. So y'all just go sign up on your own. Swanbitcoin.com. Um, sign up if you want to. 
It's really cool. Basically, you just tell them how many dollars every day you want to buy. They hold it for you for like 10 days. And then once it, once you hit a certain threshold, it'll auto withdraw to your wallet. Now you can have your own wallet. I suggest just go sign up for a custodian account somewhere. Um, Coinbase is the easy one. Just go sign up for Coinbase and they have a good track record of being pretty secure. So go sign up for Coinbase and just uh, go into your Bitcoin wallet there. Go click into your Bitcoin and then click like receive and um, it will give you your Bitcoin address. Just copy that on a computer. Don't try to manually type it in because you're going to get it wrong. If you get it wrong, you lose all your money. Don't get it wrong. Copy it. Control C or just hit the button that says copy. Go to Swan Bitcoin, set it up, just paste it in there. Make sure it's right. Double check, triple check, quadruple check that's right. <laughs> Put it in there. Um, and then you'll automatically just be investing in Bitcoin and Bitcoin will just be sent to your wallet on Coinbase on a set schedule. Why do I use Swan Bitcoin? Number one, their fees are super low. If you just try to buy directly from Coinbase on a $10 transaction, they charge something like a dollar. That's like 10%. Well, it's actually less, but you know, you get the picture. It's a lot of money that they're charging you just to buy Bitcoin. If you buy it on Swan, they charge you a 1% fee. So you buy, you know, a hundred dollars, they charge you one. That's, that's a much better <laughs> fee, right? It's much more tolerable. Um, and then when they, they hold your coins for free, and then when they transfer them, they eat the costs of the transfer of the, of the Bitcoin um, network's fees. Because the Bitcoin charges a small fee when you move it. Uh, the network does, the protocol does. They eat that cost, the, their, their trust broker. Um, so that's great. So you don't have to pay any other fees after you buy it. It'll just go into your Coinbase wallet. Perfect. Done. Now, if you get to a point where you own a lot of it, you'll want to start looking at getting off of Coinbase. But this is the easy, simple thing just to get up off the ground and just start working. Then you should read about Bitcoin, read everything you can, watch uh, videos, listen to podcasts. There's a whole bunch of information now on the internet for this. Um, I just suggest you go out and find uh, people that you trust. Also, on Twitter, just follow Bitcoin as a topic and you'll start running into the world of Twitter, uh, Bitcoin Twitter. And that place is awesome. <laughs> it's a bit like a religion, so don't get too sucked into it. But um, it's really interesting to, to hear all these ideas from these people who are into Bitcoin and also the Bitcoin critics. Um, follow, go, go ahead and go follow Peter, Peter Schiff, who is a, a longtime gold proponent who hates Bitcoin, thinks it's awful, thinks it has no value whatsoever. Go follow him. Why not? It's good to hear both sides of the argument. You're hearing one side here. You need to hear the other. You need to hear the, pers the perspective of people who believe that the, this stuff is worth nothing. Um, and then make up your own mind on, on whether or not you think it's valuable. I tried to show you based on the data and the hard facts, right? The economic functions, the characteristics of money. But some people just have a different opinion. <laughs> so, go, so go listen to them. Why not? Um, and then prep yourself for a downturn. So first of all, you should be dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin. Once you have that set up, reduce your spending. Don't buy as much stuff. Hoard your cash and then invest in precious metals if you want another hedge. Uh, so gold and silver. You can invest in physical gold and silver. You can invest in um, stocks that are gold and silver miners or gold and silver trusts or gold and silver ETFs. You can find all these things if you want to. I mean, the safest thing to do, though, it is more expensive is to just buy the physical asset. Uh, however, it's more expensive. So, so you figure out whether you want to hold actual gold and silver in a safe somewhere. Um, and then, you know, the most important thing, just acquire Bitcoin. Acquire Bitcoin. That's really important. All right. How long have I gone? Now we're 14. I'm going to do something I've never done. I am not going to edit this whatsoever. 
you're going to hear all my ums and ahs and awkward pauses. And if I didn't cut something in the right place while I was recording it, you're going to get that too. Um, because I'm not going to take an hour 15 to re-listen to something I just did. If I said anything wrong, I apologize. Let me know. Uh, most of you listen to this know me anyway. Um, if you don't know me, thank you for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Um, you know, you can always help by reviewing it if you think there's value coming from it. I would love that. That'd be cool. Um, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on everything. I made sure we were on everything when I first set this up. Just now coming back to it. Um, I want to get to a point where I have guests on here. And I still have that in, in the cards. But I have to be careful with what I say on this podcast while I'm still active duty military. So um, that will be coming down the pike sometime. But I don't know when. And uh, thank you all. Hope you have a great day. And uh, peace out. Go buy some Bitcoin and hold it for the long term. Don't be stupid with where you're holding it. Um, you know, there are stories of these guys putting all their life savings in Bitcoin at all time highs and then Binance locked them out of their accounts. Um, Binance is an exchange. Locked them out of their accounts so they couldn't sell it when they wanted to. They bought a whole bunch of it on leverage too. Remember when we talked about Robinhood and leverage and not using their leverage, Robinhood Gold, to buy stuff that's risky? Yeah, this guy was doing that with Bitcoin, which is even riskier. Um, he got all mad because he lost like 50 grand plus 30 grand in leverage or something like, I don't know. He owes them. <laughs> he owes somebody, Binance probably, like 30 grand um, because he was stupid. Should Binance have let him into his account? Certainly, but they had an outage. <laughs> that happens with everybody. Um, first of all, this guy should not have had all of his money in Bitcoin. Well, it's probably not all of his money, but that much money in Bitcoin on an exchange. We talked about that, right? Get more security when you have a lot of it. And also, he shouldn't have used leverage to invest in Bitcoin, betting that the price is going to go up when you don't know in the short term if it's going to. Hold for the long term. Make sure the amount you're holding, you're okay with the level of security where you're holding it. Exchanges are not secure. Custodians are slightly more secure, like Coinbase or uh, Gemini. Those are more secure. The most secure is owning it yourself and holding it yourself in a multi-sig wallet, where if you lose one key, you don't lose it forever. If you, the most secure is a three of five multi-sig wallet where you can lose two of the keys and you still have three. That's the most secure. You should look into that if you want to. <laughs> um, just Google multi-sig wallet. You can learn all about it. If it starts sounding crazy uh, and complex, go to a website called keys, K-E-Y-S dot Casa, C-A-S-A. Just read their product offerings. You'll understand what I'm talking about then. All right. <sighs> Gotta shake it out. Okay. Like I said, this is going up without edit. Don't cancel me, people, please. Um, this is just free flowing. I did write down some notes, but it's mostly just off the cuff. <laughs> the notes just keep me on track. All right. Have a great day. Um, I will check y'all later. See ya. This has been a Worst Pop production.